The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today we have a very special guest, Professor Philip Tedeschi uh, from the Denver University uh, Institute of Human and Animal Communications. So before Connection. we get in, hello Philip, good morning. Good morning, how are you? I'm good. So I just wanted to give our audience just a little uh basic background of where our conversation is going to go today. Um, it's Today it's very difficult to escape the news and the headlines of the unprecedented decline and breakdown of our natural world and our world systems and how that leads into the breakdown of our communities. Our effects upon the earth have been disastrous and are getting worse. To affect change, the questions we will need to focus on to better understand why we've gotten to this point and how we will face the challenges ahead are fundamental to our social structures, the relationships we have with one another and our non-human neighbors. As we begin to fully understand that our health, physical, spiritual, and social, is dependent upon the health of our Earth, her ecosystems, and her diverse life forms, that includes the social frameworks that encompass them. Our friends, our neighbors, companions, and many of which are animals, and of whom many are considered our best friends and family. So I'd like to bring in uh, uh, Professor Tedeschi from uh, the Institute for Human and Animal Communications, and some of his best friends are animals, too. He has studied and teaches about the intricate relationships between people, domestic and wild animals, and the natural world, and provides insight and tools toward understanding our social networks and the readiness of social work to address the coming challenges of this fractured world. You can learn more about Philip's work through his many publications, his TEDxDU presentation, and on the web at portfolio.du.edu. Welcome, Philip. I think we've got quite a discussion today. Yeah, we sure do. Well, thank you for having me, Ellie. How it's, are you today? It's a pleasure. I'm fine. I'm excited, and um, I think we're going to have an incredible discussion, and as we were talking before we started the show, I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything that is on my mind 
being able to speak to someone who has such a wide and diverse background who can answer so many questions that not only I personally feel, but I think our listeners and our world is thinking about too. So why don't we start off? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, your background, and how that relates to the formation of the Institute for Human-Animal Communications? Sure. Well, well, let me start. Uh, one quick correction. The, the Institute is called the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, um, and we are uh, located at the University of Denver in Denver, Colorado, and are home, housed in the Graduate School of Social Work. And it's a program that has been there for now uh, well over a decade. We've been teaching courses in this area for, for about 17 years. And um, our primary objective is to have social scientists, uh, the master's in social work candidate, learn to integrate these these areas, the the whole area of human-animal interaction into the you know, into their core training as social scientists. And and so that's what we're up to. This is a huge leap from, uh, let's say, when I was in college. And I did go to DU, and I don't recall seeing um, any classes of this type, of, of this sort, that encompassed this kind of concept. So first off, we've made huge paired, since we're going to be talking about the need for radical shifts to move to a new paradigm, that alone is a huge paradigm shift. So that only took, I'm going to age myself, uh, <laughs> approximately 25, 30 years. So we can see huge shifts within a relatively short period of time. Um, the foundation of much of your work is focused around the concept that our primary social connections are most often a description of the relationships in our lives that are most critical. Could you uh, expound on that a little bit more? I know you led into that, but could you go there a little more directly? Well, absolutely. That I mean, I think maybe one of the best ways to talk about that is, at least when we are talking about our program, is to examine how social workers think about uh, community and people in general. And that one of the ways that we think about people is we think about them through what we refer to as an ecological system. We even talk about an ecological map. So if you were imagining yourself and drawing all of the important relationships that you have in your life, um, what would they be? And in what we had determined is that in many people's lives, uh, living things, particularly animals, are significant in their well-being. So it becomes a natural, you know, a nat natural extension of the social work model of ecological systems theory for us to take into account people's lives as they relate to living things. And, you know, one of the ways that we now think about it is that a modern day social worker would be prepared to recognize the significance of that uh, in terms of human health and advocating for the communities they work with. So um, I recall watching your TEDx TEDxDU presentation that, and this relates to what you were just saying, in terms of natural disasters, I'm going to call them natural disasters, but we are learning more and more that they are uh, natural disasters that have been affected or a result of human actions on, uh, on our planet. But that's enough for another story, uh, another episode. That so, is. Sorry. I said that is. Yeah. yeah that's a whole so we could talk uh, about that story. another time. But you also mentioned that, uh, 
it's from our history through today that science has replaced our senses as a faculty for knowing. Would you elaborate a little on this and how it has affected our ability to know or realize what is going on in the natural world around us and perhaps how that is disconnecting us from taking action? Yeah, well, I think one of the, you know, one of the important things that we've started to recognize is that um, that in many different ways, I mean, we, there, there are many examples of this, but that increasingly we both uh, need uh, contact with the living world for optimum health, but we also undermine it. And in many cases, uh, we, we even have started to ignore it or, or not even recognize the significance of it in terms of everyday health. So that, you know, as we've started to um, integrate this program into training professionals who are going to be working with people, one of the things that we've found is that many individuals have become quite disconnected or and, and in some cases just simply don't understand how their connection with living things support their everyday health, both on a on a you know local level and a community level or even within their everyday lives, but also on global levels, really with our largest ecological systems that support global and global planetary health. And so these have become a primary focus of our program. And uh, I mean, an example of that on a small scale level would be that as we've started to look at the importance of animals in human health, we have um, started to recognize that uh, people have relationships with animals that are some of their most reliable and significant relationships that they have every day. So in most cases, those would be our pets. And that when we fail to appreciate that people have these very important regular connections with their animals in their lives, then we did, you know, we're unprepared to do things like respond to people in natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina, but you name it, that issue has come up and people simply are connected to those animals. And as a result, when we are trying to intervene in, let's say, a natural disaster, we also have to recognize that relationship. So that's just one example on a small scale. I'm sorry, you're breaking up a little teeny bit, Philip. So I'm missing a little bit of what you said, but I, from um, what the question that I sort of lost the track of in terms of responding to natural disasters, what you're saying is that in order to better prepare and work from the social work perspective to respond to people who have suffered natural, natural disasters, that this human animal uh, connection and and, and relationship is going to be, is not going to be, is critical in helping people recover. Yeah, recover, but also, uh, Ellie, the, in the issue of natural disasters, one of the primary things was seen was that, that uh, when people were trying to rescue those individuals out of harm's way, that they really had to be prepared to remove people's animals as well. And that that became a critical feature of that human animal connection was a critical feature of understanding the relationship that people had. Well, right there is a paradigm shift from, I'd say, 20 years ago and previous natural disasters. Let's say Sri Lanka or what's happened in Haiti and what's happened recently with 
um, even school shootings, which is not exactly a natural disaster, but perhaps we're going to get into that a little bit today. Um, further along, I have some questions, and I think you'd be the per- perfect person to ask about it in terms of um, our programming today. But before we get there, uh, in an age of our culture and where we interact and engage with our technology, in place of our senses and knowing the world, how will we go about through the perspective and lens of your work, social work, how do we go about reintegrating ourselves um, as individuals and as communities to our natural world? When it seems we've gone about doing everything we can to conquer, distance ourselves from nature, destroy it, and whether that's intentional or through unintended consequences, how Today, in this world of despair, and we're going to get into that in a little bit, do we reconnect? How do we find these social systems in our neighborhood if we're not in a program such as yours? Well, that, that's a very important question, and now one that has been, you know, is being looked at by researchers and scholars in this area. And I think there are a lot of things that we can do to reconnect uh, to these, uh, to our lives yeah, you know, to our lives as it relates to nature and um, and to the living world. And probably one of the most important things is for us to examine where, you know, where it starts. So for many people there, and let's say generations of my own being, uh, let's say, kind of growing up um, as a 50-year-old now was be um, – remembering places, green places, maybe a particular tree or a family member or a relative that had a had a had a farm or a, a setting that you would go, even in for those of us who grew up in urban settings, we might have used the local, um, you know, empty lot that didn't have a building or didn't have a, uh, you know, didn't have some kind of man-made, you know, or human-built environment in it. Those were places that served important purposes. And as we've started to study what happens when children are interacting with living with living things, animals, uh, but also other forms of our living systems, is that that's one of the most important ways for them to develop the strongest neurological activity possible. And that what has happened in our communities is that we have started to see contact with living things as somewhat optional, or maybe even a dis, you know, downplay the relevance of the of those interactions. So in many uh, communities. They have done, you know, things like uh, turn normal uh, green spaces that were where children were, let's say, able to access those and where families or parents might even encourage them to be out in those natural spaces. We've turned those into urban urban play environments, which are not the same. So that in terms of the, a child's creativity and their capacity to experience all of their senses, to use their creativity as it relates to the natural world, that's uh, that is started to diminish, and we've started to replace that with technology that includes things like nature shows. So we may see nature on a television or a computer. We may learn it through a zoo or, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But we would not, um, you know, we're starting to disregard the importance of that actual relationship. And that as we start to study the importance of that relationship, we realize that it's directly related with uh, all different types of human health, including human and child development, psychological health. 
Wow, you just went, you just lit up like 16 questions in my mind. So um, you brought in nature television programming. So let's go there for a, a little bit. Um, much of our natural history programming today is all about getting close and into nature, that there is excitement and danger and action just around the corner. And with the teasers of impending disaster about to happen to keep the viewer tuned in, do you think the effect of this type of programming is having a negative impact on us, our children, and our relationship to the natural world? Well, I don't, I don't know if I would describe it as negative if unless that is all we have. So if we, you know, if that serves as a purpose, if the purpose of it is served by providing interesting information and maybe a, the ability to see over the horizon line, I don't know that that would necessarily uh, be negative. But what we are finding is negative is where it's starting to replace real relationship with living things. So, you know, if we don't have that important relationship with uh, the environment immediately outside our door or the animals that live in our forests and in our environments or just even, you know, in our uh, trees right outside our home. There's wildlife, uh, you know, that we can see just simply participating even in an urban environment that that would be um, without a doubt a negative impact because we would have children who would be increasingly detached from any relationship with the living world. So that's definitely one important perspective. I guess where I'm trying to go to is that we have all these celebrity and character-driven um, reality TV programs, whether it be yes. someone like Jeff Corwin or Steve Irwin. They've gone – those were the beginnings of this new kind of interface between the television viewing audience and the natural history guide. But right. it's gone so far beyond that. And I'm just wondering if this is a role model that we should be um, or what kind of a role model this is and if there is a way that we can make a better connection to the viewer uh, that to engage them in nature. I always say go out and touch a tree after my show. But you said a very important thing that when natural history becomes their relationship or natural history TV programming in these shows become their relationship to nature. How do we address that? How do we get people out of the chair and into nature? Well, I think, you know, one of the things, the studies that have been done in this area suggests that one of the most important things are our families, our parents, probably, in terms of how they're exposing their own children. Teachers also are an important part of that. And our public education delivery systems are an important part of that. So we would really like to see, you know, much more comfortability of including uh, information and then experiences that expose children to animals and to natural environments. And when we talk about the celebrity culture of in you know interacting with animals, I think one of the things that you might be getting at, which is is clearly a problem, is when the what people are observing are really intrusive or disrespectful relationships with living animals, living systems and animals that encourage people to see them, you know, as tools or as um, 
recreation that they, when they choose to, can interfere with that, for the most part, one of our biggest problems now is that animals really don't have any settings that uh, are not interfered with by animals. And so as we start to see people um, modeling those more intrusive activities with animals. We've not only had a human-animal conflict issues that have resulted in problems, but we've also diminished the uh, opportunity for animals to to live their lives in uh, in healthy ways without the interference of you know human in, human you know human interfere uh, human interference and behaviors that sometimes put the human and the animal at risk. Well, I could talk about this with you forever. Um... I think I'm going to have to follow up you after with you after our show. But at the moment, it's gone so fast, we need to head into a very short break. So once again, you can learn more about uh, Professor Tedeschi's work through his website at portfolio.du.edu and the Institute for Human-Animal Connections. I apologize for saying communications. Oh, and we'll be right back. <laughs> The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Streaming live The leader in internet talk radio VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World We want to hear from you Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788 that's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking with us. My guest today is Professor Philip Tedeschi, and we are talking about uh, the human-animal bond, the connection and the communication that is important between us and the world around us. 
of uh, the Institute for Animal, Human Animal Connection also, excuse me, also focuses on the, what the causes are and what happens to us when we are disconnected from nature. The feelings of isolation, discomfort, disease, and loneliness, and even despair surrounding us from all the news of the headlines of our Earth's decline. And that seems to happen a lot around this time of year as we head in to the holidays, this shift of loneliness. In your um, chapter, uh, Conservation Social Work, in the book Ignoring Nature No More, you discuss two new terms that I found very important, nostalgia and psychoteric. Can you tell us more about what this is? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, those are, are important terms where that were soul nostalgia was a term coined by a sociologist, uh, a man named Glenn Albrecht in, uh, in Australia. And what he's trying to define that becomes such an important concept these days is the impact on our emotional and psychological health when we're watching places that we have relationships with being desecrated or damaged. And that became a really of interest to me because for many years I had studied the issue of people's exposure to cruelty, to animal cruelty, and had spent many years as a forensic uh, evaluator looking at the relationship between cruelty to animals and violence towards people. So we refer to that as link violence. And what we now know is that animal cruelty is closely associated with things like child treatment, intimate partner violence, uh, abuse towards other vulnerable persons, animals being one of those one of those examples of cruelty that is attached to other forms of callous and unemotional uh, unemotional traits that we see in antisocial activity. What I started to wonder about is this then translate in the same way to when we're treating our environment that way. So Glenn Albrecht's term solastalgia really referred to how we might feel when we're watching a place that we know well, that we have a natural space or a living system that we have a relationship with being damaged. An example of that for me was when I was uh, an Outward Bound instructor for many years, I would spend my days off paddling in the estuaries of the Gulf Coast so that watching the Gulf Coast uh, oil spill was just almost felt torturous. I was angry and frustrated and very emotional, probably not the most friendly person to be around. And I just felt very helpless. And and it, for all practical purposes, what I was demonstrating is what's called psychoteric disease, which is a form of mental health issue or a mental illness even uh, that results from watching our living system, our planet. Um, being damaged. And so if, if the listeners want to, you know, think about this themselves, or Ellie, maybe we can use you as an example. When you think of a place that you've had a relationship with that you've seen impacted by human behavior or human, um, you know, activity, how does that make you feel? Well, that's an excellent question. And it's one of the deep reasons why I wanted to have this conversation with you. And our listeners will probably notice as they listen to various topics that I sort of do a monologue on that 
and, and I learned through reading your book that what I am suffering is psychoteric disease. Um, for me, it's not about a specific singular place. For me, it's watching the decline of our world. My work is about conservation and engaging people to take part, communicate, and gather together to create uh, comfort zones and work together to change our world to what we would like it to be. So over these past couple of years, it's been very difficult to watch the world collapse, to watch um, our our species head toward extinction. And like you had said, watching going through the estuaries after the spill, um, I wake up and my days are filled with despair. It's like a black hole that I can't do anything about. I'm doing the best I can in terms of this show and bringing in guests like you to highlight and maybe to convince myself that things are getting better. But daily, I I honestly don't. So what is what is a solution for that, Philip? How do we uh, humans go around changing our bad habits, break these negative patterns, whether it be loneliness and despair, and learn to incorporate and flip that switch to healthier patterns and in, and actually engage. We're talking about engaging, but I don't think we are. Well, I think you're hitting on a very important point, and you're right. Shows like this are very important because they give people the opportunity to consider these issues and ideas and examine how they play out in their everyday lives. And the way I think about it is the first place for us to start is is awareness that as we start to recognize that there's this anthropogenic worldwide decline in biodiversity you know really that we're in the now the sixth extinction of animals occurring worldwide as a feature of uh, human behavior human action so we refer to that as the anthropocene meaning that people are driving this particular extinction that that awareness allows us to consider the importance of our relationships with the living world and then the, i guess the second part of my answer to your question is related to these concepts things like solastalgia and psychoteric disease so one of the ways that people uh, we know that people deal with cruelty and exposure to things that make them feel either afraid or harmed or hurt, the vicarious experience of being uh, in close context. Um, that, uh, sorry about that. Uh, um, that we want to recognize that these are very real relationships that we're having and that these relationships matter to our health, much like any other relationship would matter. So that if we start to see our connection to the living world as a genuine relationship, then one of the things that we can start to question ourselves about is what kind of relationship do we want to have? And so, and that relates to relationships with the animal living in our home as a pet, but it also relates to the other living systems we have, um, you know, more globally. So I think that that beginning of identifying concepts that remind people that these relationships are no less real than our marriages, our relationship with our children, 
or our other connections, that that becomes one of the places that we can start looking at how to come up with solutions. And as we do that, one of the things that people will experience, much like you're describing, is they'll experience pain related to that awareness. So if you're waking up um, to the fact that we are, are damaging the living world around us and, and that animals are part of this tug-and-war struggle, um, that, that that relationship is going to become important enough for you to have some feelings about. So if you're that concept of feeling you know, feeling sad or hurt or, or um, you know, worried are important not to chase away, not to shut down. And we're really good at that these days. We have tremendous problems with distractions, uh, intentional distractions, for example, or addictions, for example, that could be attributed to really just trying to shut down our feelings. So the very first thing that you're doing, Ellie, that I hope, you know, other people will do as well is allow themselves to have um, you know, our relationship with the natural world and real feelings about it. And from there, we can begin coming up with solutions. So sort of here from what you just said, I, I recognize, I'm going to call it two sets of populations. There are those of us who are aware, like you, um, like Mark Beckoff, like many of my guests and myself, we are aware of this relationship and how deeply we are connected to what's going on and how deeply it is affecting us. Um, the decline, the extinctions, it, it's, it's, it's sort of ruling our days. And then there is the population that is not quite getting this connection, which is a lot of what uh, your program and the Institute work on. So for those of us who are aware that are aware that we're, we're facing systalgia and psychoteric disease, uh, what, what do we do um, besides having shows like this and conversations like this and talking and bringing this out to a larger audience? What do we do, all the people who are in conservation, the researchers, the scientists, the social workers that recognize this is where we're at? What do we do to help move well, this forward? Well, I think one of the, you know, one of the most exciting things about my work is that I've realized and, you know, uh, and, and in everyday form, uh, it, it comes with people wanting to tell me about their relationships with uh, with their animals. But people are fascinated by animals. They're really motivated to have connections with living world, the living world. And that one of the things that we know is that we can engage the exact same part of the brain in a child, for example, by exposing them to uh, to an animal, to teaching them about how to interact with that animal, the the uh, you know the details really about the unique ways in which animals interact um, with each other and with the, the ecological systems. Uh, that part of the brain that's activated is exactly the same part of the brain that's activated by engaging in, let's say, playing a violent video game. So the, my point being that one of the things we can do is decide what we want to focus on and whether or not we're demonstrating through our actions and our attitudes and our and our activities and even maybe more you know, in a more structured way, what are we teaching? And so do our curriculum and our school system model these attitudes and values? Well, clearly they don't, not at least not adequately. We have, you know, probably some of our most effective teachers are persons 
that will bring young people out to experience living world and see these things in person and that those make indelible lifelong changes in the way I think about connection. So going back to the idea of relationship, we need to teach people about the environment animals that they're coming into contact with. We have a lot of research that shows that children don't know much about even a single tree or an animal that's at, right outside their door. You know, here in Colorado, we have many, many children living within just a, you know, a short, a short distance from some of the most wonderful natural environments who have never been there. Um, so they have really no relationship with that. So I would start with, you know, a broad concept of modeling in terms of when you think about either yourself or the ways in which we may model that we have a relationship with the living world, how do we do that? And is it played out in what our what our children see and and the ways in which we interact with the world around us. I mean, even if uh, maybe one of the most important examples of that is things like how we live, how we consume, how we spend our money, how we eat, how we, you know, recreate, all of those can be opportunities to model that fact that we have relationships and have hopefully healthy relationships with the living world. So I would start with modeling as one of the most important ways in which we can change these destructive patterns. That's an, that's excellent information, and I hope that helped our listeners, and uh, some of which I'm sure are educators or are feeling some of the very issues and uh, sensations that we're talking about today. Uh, earlier, you we're going to be heading into a break here in about three minutes, but what I'd like to get into is early you had mentioned uh, cruelty and abuse and violence. We're seeing violence through our television programming, uh, things that are rated PG-13 for our youth. Uh, it is very much about blowing things up, uh, aggravated relationships, weaponry, and uh, vi- violence and death without consequence, violence, death, and destruction without consequences. Um, and what I'd like to head into, we've got just a couple minutes here. If you could briefly expound a little, expand a little on that connection, that what that violence that we're seeing, as you were just talking about, is doing to our youth and to our adults. Yeah, well, I think that um, one of the resources that I can give the listeners today is a project that we've been working on for a number of years. So if they uh, search under um, what they call it, the Colorado Link Project dot uh, com, you'll find a brand new website that highlights um, a lot of the work that we've been doing specifically related to the impact um, of our of towards animals and its and its relation to human health. And it's become a major part of the work at our institute because, we've, you know, as I was talking about earlier, we've known for quite some time that there's a relationship between the way we interact with animals in our homes to the psychological health and development of children growing up in those homes. So we now, you know, know quite definitively that if we are exposing children to the proper care of animals in a healthy way, that they develop resiliency factors that help them become 
more, um, you know, social, more positive, more pro-social individuals. And when you expose them to cruelty, we are, are seeing children who are growing up with increased callousness and antisocial qualities that put them at risk. These are risk factors that, that move them in the direction of these, um, these problems, areas. So that we want to understand that that's not just limited to our pets. That as we've started to look at this issue worldwide, it relates to the way we interact with all living things. And ultimately, you know, as we start to come to grips with that, hopefully people will recognize that these are parts of the ways that we develop the human spirit, the human psychological condition as as children are growing. Well, thank you for that. Uh, right now, we're going to head into another short break. So do please stick with us. You can visit uh, the Denver University Institute of Human Animal Connections. What's the website, Philip? Portfolio. Um, dot du dot edu and uh do some keyword google research on uh professor philip tedeschi and find out what's going on so we'll be right back after the break stick with us Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Back with Professor Philip Tedeschi, and we're talking about the human-animal uh, connection and uh, how that relates to our well-being and the well-being of our Earth. Uh, 
what is it about us people that we need to reach out and touch wild animals? A lot of our conversation today with uh, Professor Tedeschi has been about the human-animal relationship in terms of our pets. We have this natural affinity. You can see it in children and people, the, the fascination with going on safari, let's say. We have this fascination with animals. But what is it about us that we need to reach out and touch them, make them a part of the me world, and um, how do we work around this and get into a place of acceptance that animals are of another mind, that they have an existence outside of ourselves. Well, there's no doubt about that. And, and I'm sure that, um, you know, many of your listeners who are interested in animals have been, you know, learning and hearing a lot more about the fact that we know now that animals sentience, their capacity for complex and you know thinking and and complex emotional lives and have very much the same kinds of concerns and needs that humans have they don't have to be human for them to be recognizable that that is part of what we're teaching at at our institute as well but really what you're i think in some ways getting at ellie is this applied perspective that comes in, you know, when we look at the field of human, humane education and kind of the application is that we want to recognize that animals have, are, are real. They have these complex lives that we can start to recognize. And that when we do that, one of the things that it allows us to do is teach empathy and compassion. Um, and that that is one of the more difficult things to do in, a, in human psychology, that we've always thought of attachment early happening early, early on in a child's uh, connection with their human caretakers was one of the only ways to do that. And that that attachment, um, what we sometimes will, when we see deficits in it, we even call it attachment disorder. Well, what that can cause or, or create in the life of that individual when there are deficits in that area is the inability to have healthy and safe relationships. So if we model appropriate relationships with animals and we recognize that they're alive and that they have these, uh, that they have these recognizable uh, cognitive and emotional lives and, and share many things with us, that we have uh, now a new way of understanding our relationships with, with animals. And so at the Institute for Human-Animal Connection, we use that recognition as a new way to explore ways to strengthen attachment, to begin to improve empathic and compassion regard for others, and that it becomes uh, really one of the most important anchors for um, some of the therapeutic work that we're doing between people and animals as well. Well, this is this is amazing, and it's it's wonderful that this is growing, and I see it growing within our Western world. But I understand you also take graduate students to Kenya and work in other cultures, and there are so many other cultures that do not have the same respect for animals that we are learning. So, in terms of what you had just said. In our world and in other in our Western society and culture, and when we're working with other cult cultures, how do we relate what you just said to uh, crossover to our food, our food, our, our food, animal food, um, and the people who work 
with these animals. We've all seen the disastrous videos from the different humane organizations or circuses. How do we transfer this compassion? How do we how do we build that up? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that I've learned over, you know, the last, you know, many years of studying this area is that, you know, through the lens of spiritual, religious and philosophical viewpoints, really, that that we see obligations worldwide to our relationship with animals. So that one of the things I think we want to recognize is that even though not every culture views um, the same type of animal in the way that we might view, let's say, the dog that sleeps at the end of our bed or, or what have you, but that cultures have relationship with animals that are unique and special and that there are people within those cultures that appreciate and have very important and powerful relationship with animals worldwide. And so I think what we, you know, what we really want to start to recognize now is that that we have kind of a new obligation to recognize that we have these these global obligations to protect the planet that are a shared obligation that do require that cultures begin to re-examine their, their own cultural practices and, uh, and look at those through, you know, through these lenses of recognizing that those decisions will impact the environment and the culture that we live in. So in the United States, we have many examples of relationships with animals that are quite profound and beautiful, but we also have relationships with animals that are, you know, defined by cruelty and real problems that have become quite um, normative and institutionalized. And we pay a price for those every day. Every culture has those now, both examples of positive relationships with animals and problematic relationship with animals. And I think, you know, that's what we really want to create a discussion and begin to work on together. So in that in that light, how does our compassion for that pet that sleeps at the end of our bed versus the safari goer uh, who is looking sort of superficially at a group of animals, lion, the uh, hippo, rhino, leopard. Uh, we don't often recognize those animals as individuals. How do we transfer this compassion that we have for our pet, which is an animal, to those that we sometimes think of as other, that they live out there? in nature as though it's something disconnected from ourselves. I, I think we, it is dis- disconnected. How do right. we reconnect that? Well, well, the way we do it, I, I mean, part of our institute's work is to explain that to people. And so one of the things that we believe is through the role of scientific inquiry, we can begin to explain why we like having an animal in our home. And also we can explain, why we have such an interest in seeing animals, wild animals, for example, in the wild. So, for example, those of you who have uh, a companion animal, a pet that you see as a close, you know, family member or spend time with every day, you might look forward to seeing when you come home at night um, and you enjoy that time spent with that animal. Well, what we know about that interaction is that that interaction is in part supported by the fact that it changes your neurochemistry, your affective neurochemistry when you're in that interaction. So, for example, your stress 
hormones, your stress chemistry changes, um, you re- you see a release in oxytocin, a release in dopamine production in the brain that makes you feel better. So when you're saying, wow, it's really relaxing to lay on my, you know, lay on the floor and, and uh, pet my dog or I, you know, I enjoy going on a walk with them. Not only are you enjoying that, your animal is also experiencing a very same similar neurological shift. And then that interaction is real. That's changing your physiology. But it also that then changes the way you view the world, your level of optimism, your sense of well-being, your body feels better. Those interactions are very real. In safari environments, one of the things that we know through uh, models like the uh, biophilia hypothesis is that we recognize that we feel um, value when we have contact with little things. So many people, for example, keep a plant in their window or they have a window in their home that looks out at a beautiful view. Um, if you have that, one of the reasons that you've placed that window to look out the outside is that that improves your health. We know, for example, it changed surgical outcomes when people get to look at beautiful things versus, let's say, a brick wall. Um, so when you're on safari, what happens? Well, most for what happens for most people is they feel lucky. They feel special if they have a good, uh, you know, really an educative safari experience. They're learning about that animal and the unique nature of that animal. They actually, um, there's a term for this that's referred to as the peak experience. And the peak experience is a rush. It's almost a sense of feeling a sense of well-being because you had been lucky enough to have this contact. And that also is a change in the brain that allows you to feel um, in some improvement. So when we um, expose people to places where living things are disregarded, disrespected, treated cruelly, probably, you know, one of the most invisible forms of that is really our factory farming environments where large numbers of animals are out of sight, out of mind, but where that cruelty is occurring. Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, most people really think much about that in in terms of consumption of their food. But that matters. Those things do matter. Those become delible parts of our cultural activity. And one of the things that we want to, you know, begin to challenge is what kind of relationship do we want to have even with the animals that become part of our consumptive behaviors. You've been an amazing guest today, Philip. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation, and I wish it could go on and on and on. Um, I think I'm going to sum up quickly, and then I'd like you to uh, add in that the takeaway from today's episode is that there are connections all around us, and the positive benefits, not only neurologically, physiologically, physically, emotionally, that we can get, that we can gain from focusing on the positive relationships we have with our pets and the positive feeling that we get looking out our window or going into the wild is an important part of what is needed to readjust and um, attempt and move along this radical change that we need, we humans, to have a better relationship with our earth that is going to save us eventually. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I guess what we've tried to do at our institute is, you know, turn these theories into some level of a translated set of actions 
uh, in in academia so that we are allowing now students who are interested in working with people to integrate this understanding, you know, into the, into the really the core competencies, the ways in which they think about supporting and advocating for people. And I think that's really the right way to do it, right? Is that we want to recognize that if we're wanting to, you know, the best for people, then we also want the best for the environment, that those things are inextricably connected and that we can no longer think of them as separate or, you know, usable items that can somehow be used and discarded. They're simply going to go together. But we now know that human, you know, human well-being is closely attached um, almost on every level. So, you know, everything from poverty reduction work you know, to public health and even human security are going to be related to whether or not we have some appreciation for our connection with the with the living system around us. And that's really the work that we try to do every day with our students. And um, we hope that uh, our listeners will get to know our work and join us because it's it's everybody's work and it's going to be more so every day because it's more more that way. So that leads me to a question. How do people um, join in? or participate in the Institute's work? Do you have to be a student or do you have online classes or can people just, how can people relate and hear more of what you and the Institute is working on? Well, one of the ways you can do that is to go to our website. If you just search under human-animal connection, you'll find us at the University of Denver. We do have academic classes that are a part of the university program, but we also do have a distance learning program called Animals in Human Health. And the Animals in Human Health program now has students from all over the world. In fact, we have students from every continent in the world, I think with the exception of Antarctica, um, although we'd love to have a student from Antarctica uh, join us, but um, we we uh, now have the ability to, you know, through distance learning technology, have students join us from anywhere that they that they exist. And I, I think that's one of the ways they can join us if they make um, if they'd like to contact us. We'll put them on our mailing list this spring. For example, we're doing the very first conference on the role of animals in trauma recovery, looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, child maltreatment, and crisis intervention work, and the role that animals have played in things. I think LEU earlier referenced school shootings. We do want to understand much more carefully how animals are involved in the intentional uh, recovery work that happens in trauma incidents. So that's our, our spring conference happening May 7th and 8th on the campus of the University of Denver. Well, this is amazing, and it's uplifting, and I tell you that having the conversation today with you has made me feel better. So I'd like to thank you so much for being my guest today. I would love to have you back because there's so much more to talk about, and um, perhaps we can talk about uh, the, the program you just mentioned. So I strongly urge our listeners all over the world to engage in reading and gaining this knowledge that we talked about today. There is a multitude of information available, and step out into our wild world. It will make you feel better, and it will make our world better. Thank you, Professor Tedeschi, and everyone, I wish you a happy holiday and one filled with joy and connection. 
Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 